morning. We are uh, reading from 2 Kings chapter 5. You might like to follow along, often that's a good thing to do. But it's a great story, you might prefer to just sit back and listen to it as well. Uh, so uh, take your pick on that. 2 Kings chapter 5. Oh, in my Bible, oh, this is a... There we go, there is another red Bible up here as well. Excellent. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him Yahweh had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See, see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, 
As surely as Yahweh lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but Yahweh. But may Yahweh forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may Yahweh forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Yes, everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, uh, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please uh, give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master Elisha. Uh, where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Uh, your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes and olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds or men servants and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous, as white as snow. Amen. Arguably, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential megalomaniac. A sadomasochistic capriciously malevolent bully. 
Oh, that was, uh, that's not what I believe. <laughs> that was Richard Dawkins' uh, view of God, of the Old Testament, as expressed in his book, The God Delusion. It was interesting, I was asking some people in Bible study group during the week, what did they think of that? And uh, someone, who will remain anonymous, said, it sounds like he's not a Christian. <laughs> certainly true. I wonder uh, what you think of it. And I wonder why Dawkins would say such a thing about God. Uh, well, we could have a lengthy discussion about that, but it seems to me that um, very much a part and parcel of it is found in that word fiction, that uh, he and others like him consider the, uh, the God of the, the Old Testament to be a character out of fiction. Uh, to people like Dawkins, the Old Testament was written by men who themselves were unjust, unforgiving, bloodthirsty ethnic cleansers. Uh, people who tried to control others by attributing their ideas to God, to giving divine authority to what they thought and what they wanted to do. And so that uh, the Old Testament is really just a collection of, of nationalistic, patriotic rantings of ancient Israel, um, saying how good Israel is, how marvellous Israel is, and how terrible and sinful and deserving of judgment are all the other nations, and therefore giving Israel the right to, to move on in and to, uh, uh, to obliterate others from the face of the earth. Just nationalistic propaganda, a work of fiction. But when we read the Old Testament um, with our, our eyes open and read it carefully, uh, we see that what emerges is another story altogether. Uh, we, we see that in fact that the Old Testament uh, speaks to us more of the, the sin and the failing of Israel than of all the other nations combined. And it tells us of God's love and his kindness uh, for people who are not part of Israel, for people who are outside of uh, the nation of Israel, for Gentiles, even for people who belong to nations that are enemies of God's people, Israel. In fact, uh, scattered throughout the Old Testament, uh, there are many of, many of such stories, particularly of his affection and his mercy towards Israel's enemies. One of Israel's enemies was the nation of Aram. Now, I don't have a map for you today, but uh, if you can envisage this, the, uh, Aram, uh, the people of Aram, the Arameans, uh, lived to the northeast of Israel, uh, they lived above Moab, uh, but they shared a border with Israel. And from time to time, Aram and Israel would, uh, would there be skirmishes between them. Uh, sometimes there would be full-scale war between the two nations. In fact, in 1 Kings, uh, there is a couple of stories of uh, when uh, Aram invaded Israel and even besieged the capital city of Samaria and caused great problems for Israel. So the, the, the point here is that Aram 
and Israel were not exactly the best of friends. But in our passage today, 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, could you have that open in front of you, by the way? 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, it's really the story of the commander of the army of Aram. And we see here that uh, he is a man who is in trouble. His name was Naaman, and he was the number one soldier in the entire country. Uh, he was the general who reported directly to the king. Uh, if you have a look at uh, verse 1, you can see what his problem is. Have a look at verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord Yahweh had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had... What did he have? He had leprosy. He had leprosy. Now, uh, leprosy is a uh, terrible disease, a terrible skin disease, as you know. Um, it, uh, it's still around today. Uh, I've read recently of some case of, cases of it being detected in the Villawood Detention Centre, and I'm told that up in uh, northern Australia th there are some islands where, they, where the, the lepers live, and one of our congregation members uh, told me that he'd actually uh, been there and he'd seen uh, lepers maybe 20 or so years ago. It's a terrible flesh disease. It um, uh, damages people's nervous system so that uh, in the areas affected that they cannot feel, they cannot feel contact, they cannot feel pain, they cannot feel heat. And you think that might be a good thing. That's a terrible thing because uh, God gives you pain for a good reason. It's to protect your body. Uh, it causes skin lesions which don't heal, um, muscle deterioration and people even lose their flesh and so on. It's a terrible disease. Now, Nahum uh, may not have actually had leprosy. Uh, the reason I say that, and you see it in the NIV footnote as well, uh, and that is that uh, the Hebrew term there that is translated as leprosy is actually a fairly broad term for skin diseases, but it includes leprosy. And so he may have had leprosy or some other skin disease. Whatever the case, uh, this commander of the army of Aram was in trouble. He had a terrible skin disease. Now, how does the story develop? Well, in verses 2 and 3, Naaman had a young girl working in his household. She was actually an Israelite girl. Uh, she had been captured uh, in one of the raids that the uh, soldiers of Aram had uh, instigated upon Israel. She'd been captured and she'd been taken back to Aram and put to work as a slave in Naaman's household, a young Israelite girl. And it was this girl who told Naaman's wife about a very special man, a prophet, a prophet in Israel who could cure people of leprosy. Now, it sounds like at this particular time in history that there was I guess you'd say an uncomfortable peace between Aram and Israel. Uh, uncomfortable because 
Well, I mean, there were Israelite slaves living in Aram. Uh, that's got to introduce some degree of uncomfortableness into the relationship between the two countries. But yet it was peaceful enough for the king of Aram to send Nahum to Israel and to think it was safe to do so and to send him with a letter asking the king of Israel to heal him of his skin disease. Now, how did the king of Israel respond? Well, in verse 7, he was worried. Uh, This Nahum arrived at his palace with a letter from the the neighbouring king asking the king to heal Naaman of leprosy and he despaired. The king of Israel actually tore his robes because he thought, what is going on here? This must be some kind of a trick. I mean, how can I heal this man of his leprosy? How can I do something which only God can do? And he despaired. Now, what was the problem that the king of Israel had? What was his main problem? His problem wasn't that Naaman had fronted up at his doorstep. His problem was that he'd forgotten about Elisha. So far was he away from God in his thinking that he didn't even remember about the prophet of God who could, who could do the healing. Uh, the young Israelite girl in captivity in a foreign land remembered about Elisha, but not the king. But when Elisha heard that the king had torn his clothes, he acted and he sent a message to the king asking the king to send the man to him. Now, why did Elisha want to help? Well, in verse 8, he wanted Naaman to come to him because he wanted Naaman, this Gentile leader, to know that there is a prophet in Israel. He wanted actually to reveal something of God to this Gentile man. Now, um, in verse 9, Naaman then went to the home of Elisha. Now let's think about um, what kind of man Naaman was. Uh, in verse 1, he was, a, he was a great man. He was highly regarded by the king of Aram. He was a valiant soldier. It's interesting there that we're told, we're told that the Lord Yahweh had given him victories. Did you notice that? That uh, he, th- this is a pagan nation and that when they had victories, that it was actually the God of Israel who gave them the victories. Because he's not just the God of Israel, is he? He's the God of the whole world. And he doesn't just give victories to Israel, he gives victories to Aram as well. And there's been a couple of examples where he gave victories to Aram over Israel uh, because he was actually teaching Israel a lesson. He was actually judging Israel. So Naaman was a, a great man, highly regarded, and a valiant soldier. Uh, he was also very diplomatic. You see, he didn't just front up to the king of Israel by himself. No, he had a letter of introduction uh, from his boss, the king of Aram, and he brought a gift along as well. 
Uh, in verse 5, he bought uh, what equates to 340 kilos of silver, 70 kilos of gold, and 10 sets of clothes. Now, I've got no idea uh, what all of that would have bought a person in 9th century BC ancient Israel. But I can tell you what it was worth yesterday on the um, gold and silver markets in Australia. Uh, it was worth 3,643,560 bucks. Right? So he didn't come empty-handed, did he? He was important, he was diplomatic, and he fronted up with a pretty hefty gift. Indeed, as Naaman's entourage of horses and chariots swept into the driveway of Elisha's house, he expected to get some attention. But what happened instead? Well, verse 10. In verse 10, uh, Naaman is fronted up, and Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now, what do you think of that? A messenger. I mean, here's this guy. He's travelled all the way from Aram. He's gotten to Elisha's place. It's not just him. It's him and all his chariots and all of his officials and his servants. And, and he's fronted up and... Elisha doesn't even come to the front door. How do you feel when you go to visit someone and they don't let you in the front door or they don't even come out to see you? Right? It's not a great feeling, is it? Instead, he sends a messenger. And what does the messenger have to say? Well, the messenger says that Elisha wants you to go and wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Now, in verse 11... You know, Naaman expected Elisha to come out of the house. He expected Elisha to stand in front of him, to take his hand and to wave his hand across the affected skin areas and he'd be healed. There and then. It didn't happen. He's told to go and wash himself in a river. And so Naaman is very angry. And in verse 12, he turned and went off in a rage. Now, why was he so cranky? Well, Elisha didn't even see him. He wasn't healed there and then. And he was told to go to a river for, and, to, and, to, and to wash himself. Um, imagine how he would feel about that. Being told to go to the river and wash himself seven times. I mean, we don't know exactly... Uh, what he thought about that. He might have been thinking in terms of ritual cleansing and, um, you know, that he could have gotten ritual cleansing in his own religion back home. More likely, it seems to me, that he's not even thinking about that. He's thinking that Elisha's telling him to go and duck himself seven times in a dirty river. And he's thinking to himself, well, we've got cleaner rivers back home. <laughs> Why don't I go and take a bath? Go and take a wash? This is crazy stuff. He didn't want cleansing, he didn't want to be washed, he wanted to be healed. But in verse 10, you see, he hasn't listened to the message properly because in verse 10, Elisha promised both. 
your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, friends, the law of Moses has a few things to say about skin diseases. Have you ever read the chapters in, say, in Leviticus, um, chapters 13 and 14? Um, I've been reading through Leviticus in my daily quiet times recently and uh, you know, one day it was just two chapters full of skin diseases and it's interesting to think about how does that sort of you know, impact my view on, on God and change the way I think and behave and so on. Chapters 13 and 14 in Leviticus um, describe a whole stack of different skin disease symptoms and say what needs to happen to the person uh, who's displaying those symptoms. And the bottom line is this. If a person had a skin disease, they had to be taken to a priest. No doctors in those days. And if the priest determined that it was infectious, then the person was considered to be ritually unclean. Um, the person would be isolated for seven days. Uh, in Leviticus, of course, Israel is um, wandering in the desert. They're living in camps, uh, or in a camp, and the person would have to be put outside of the camp for a period of seven days. And after seven days, the priest would have another look at the person, see if the skin problem's still there or not. If it was, they'd have another seven days in isolation. If not, uh, they would be considered to be clean. Now what that meant, of course, is that during that time they could not participate in their worship of God at the tabernacle. Um, why don't we turn to Leviticus 13 for a moment. Um, if you want to put a finger or a bookmark in 2 Kings chapter 5, go to Leviticus chapter 13. By the way, how is your Bible reading going? Um, so good to encourage each other to... Uh, be reading the Bible on a daily basis, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Um, Leviticus chapter 13, you find it on page 80, verse 45. This is kind of like the bottom line. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkept, Cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. See that? I go back to 2 Kings 5. See, um, ritual uncleanness was a symbol of sin. The fact that a person was ritually unclean with a skin disease didn't mean that they were any more sinful than anyone else necessarily, although they might be, and sometimes, uh, sometimes leprosy was a judgment on people. But it didn't necessarily mean that they were any more sinful than anyone else. But it became a symbol of sin to be ritually unclean. You see, what does sin do to our relationship with God? Well, in our natural state, in our fallen, sinful state, we're rebels and we, we're cut off from God. We are excluded from being in the camp. We're excluded from being inside the kingdom of God. What hope is there for us? Well, what hope was there for Naaman? Only a miracle. 
He was outside the camp in every sense of the word. He was not an Israelite. He was a Gentile. He was a commander in the army of one of Israel's enemies. He was definitely outside the camp. But he was also outside the camp because he had this leprosy or this skin disease. And like all of us, he, like more than anything else, uh, needed to be cleansed of his sin. But he left Elisha's house in a huff and a puff. He was, he was angry. Thankfully, in verses 13 and 14, he had servants. Now, his servants you know, would have been more accustomed to not getting what they want when they wanted than he was. As a commander, he'd be a guy who was accustomed to snapping his fingers and things would happen for him. Um, but his servants were more patient and they, ex- they persuaded him to do exactly what Elisha had said. And so he went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself in the river seven times. And by the way, seven is the number of days that a person would be outside of the camp. I don't know if you picked that up or not. <clears throat> but he would be outside. He dipped himself in the river seven times. And what happened? Verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And then he, you know, he could have said, great, you little beauty, um, fixed, got in his horse and chariot and trotted back off to Aram, get back to duty. He could have done that, but he didn't do that, did he? What did he do instead? Well, he turned and he went, headed on the road, straight back to Elisha's house. And we see what happened in verse 15. Let me read verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went went back to the man of God. He, He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. Well, how about that? Do you remember in chapter 1? Remember when the king of Israel um, fell out of his window and injured himself? Who did he send his messengers to for spiritual advice? He sent them to the prophets of? Lachlan? Baalzebub. Thank you, Lachlan. The king of Israel, he went to Baalzebub for advice. Do you remember when Elisha um, confronted those messengers on the road and he had a question for them about why the king was sending them to, to Baalzebub for advice? He said to them, Is there no God in Israel that you have to go to Baal and worship him? Well, by contrast, here is the pagan man who has come to acknowledge that, no, no, there's no God in all the world except the God of Israel. Very different to the king of Israel. And yet, in some ways, Naaman also became like that young Israelite girl at the beginning of the story because she lived very much outside the camp, didn't she? She was an Israelite, but she was a captured person. She was living in slavery in a foreign land. 
But now, the great and mighty military commander of that, of that land has become like her. You see, it, it wasn't just his skin that became like that of a young boy, was it? It was also his, his heart. He became humble. He became grateful. He became like a child. And it, very much it's that experience of conversion that when God causes the proud and the arrogant and the rich and the mighty to humble themselves and to be grateful to God. Have you experienced that? Well, in verse 17, Naaman wants to take a couple of cartloads of soil back home to Aram with him. You notice that? Why did he want to do that? Well, because he wanted in his home to be able to worship the God of the entire world, the true God. And, and he wanted to build an altar, uh, an earthen altar, made from the soil of Israel. So you see what he's doing? He's wanting to take some of Israel back home with him so that he can worship God. A little bit of Israel in a Gentile land. Friends, uh, this is not a story of how great Israel is, not at all. It's a story of how great God is and how good he is to a Gentile man, a military commander of Israel's enemy. His skin was healed and a friendship with God began, a friendship with the one and only God. And it's a story which also points us to Jesus. You see, jumping in a river seven times, that's, that's not going to wash away the guilt of anyone's sin, is it? <clears throat> Depending on how dirty that river is, it may not even be a really crash-hot thing to do in terms of washing away any dirt. There's only one thing that can wash away the guilt of sin, and that is the death of Jesus on the cross. Because when Jesus hung and died, he died our death for us. He took the punishment we deserve. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the New Testament, the language of cleansing and washing is so often applied to what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? It's applied to uh, the, the, his death, um, meaning that all of our sin, no matter how great, how small, how putrid, that all of our sin, the guilt of our sin, can be washed away by the blood of Jesus so that people like you and me can be forgiven by God forever. But friends, in this chapter, there is one final and very dramatic contrast. Uh, you see it in verses 15 and 16 where Naaman uh, offers to give Elisha some money in order to say thanks. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? <clears throat> it shows something, shows something of his heart. But what does Elisha say? Does Elisha say, yep, thank you very much, I'm happy to take the cash? No, he says no. Uh, Elisha doesn't want to be paid. 
Um, it wasn't Elisha's work that healed him of his leprosy. It isn't Elisha who should receive the glory. It's God. And so he declines the offer of some money. But you see, Elisha has a servant named Gehazi. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's how I pronounced it anyway. I've heard three or four different pronunciations during the two services today. But he's got a servant named Gehazi, and Gehazi gets greedy. Uh, he sees in this an opportunity to make money. Have a look at verse 19. Well, <clears throat> Elisha sends Naaman off in peace, and Naaman had travelled some distance. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. What do you think about that? As surely as the Lord lives. Sounds very pious, doesn't it? I'm going to run after this bloke. I'm going to extract some cash from him. Well, when he caught up to Naaman, he, uh, he told a lie, as surely as the Lord lives. Uh, he said to Naaman, look, you know, since you left, well, a couple of other prophets have turned up at Elisha's house and he has to look after them and they need some money. So, you know, how about it? And uh, Naaman says, well, look, I'll, I'll give you more than what you want. I'm very happy to give you more. And so he, he walks away with two bags of silver and a couple of sets of clothes. They must have been very expensive clothes. Two sacks of silver. I mean, what was he thinking? I mean, his boss, Elisha, is a prophet. He has insight. He has knowledge that God gives him. And he goes back to Elisha and Elisha says, well, you know, what do you, where have you been? And what does he do? He tells him a lie. So I haven't been anywhere. Well, as he's confronted by Elisha, we see the justice of God on an Israelite. Uh, verse 27, the last verse in the whole chapter. This is what uh, Elisha says to him. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. And then Gehazi went from Elisha's present and he was leprous, as white as snow. How about that? The Israelite becomes unclean, the Gentile is made clean. The Israelite, who is supposed to be the servant of the man of God, is punished, but the pagan becomes the servant of the man of God. What's the difference here? The difference is all got to do with their response to God's mercy. Um, Gehazi should have known better. 
He knew about God. He belonged to Israel. He was supposed to serve God. But his heart was cold. He's like the person who perhaps has been in the church all of their lives, uh, who knows the Bible, who knows what God wants, who's part of God's community of people, but his heart is actually hard towards God or lukewarm towards God. And they're not really thankful for the death of Jesus. They've forgotten that he's paid for all of their sin. And they're proud and they're arrogant. They tell lies and seek after money. Well, we need to be like Naaman, the man who responded to God's kindness with a thankful and obedient heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, fascinating story of um, this incident that happened. We thank you, Father God, that, you're, uh, that, that you do not... Um, uh, that, that, that you are a God who is merciful to all people, uh, irrespective of their background, irrespective of their race. Father, that uh, you showed your mercy... Uh, to to Naaman. Uh, Father, we uh, pray that we would be people like Naaman who would respond to your mercy with thankfulness, with humility, with obedience. Uh, Lord, um, may we not be like Gehazi who uh, had every advantage but yet was corrupt in his heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.